Let us now read together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 1. There we find God's Spirit summarized as follows. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. After the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 32 to stanzas 2 and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, it's appropriate that at the beginning of a new season, we also make a new beginning with Heidelberg Catechism. For catechism classes will start in a few weeks. And the school doors will open its doors this week, the Lord willing. Society life where God's word will be studied will also soon be in full swing. We recognize the need to be grounded in our faith. And the Heidelberg Catechism lays down the basic doctrines of the Bible. Originally, the Catechism was meant exclusively for the instruction of the youth. That was the original intention of Frederick III, who commissioned the writing of the Catechism. However, soon the worth of the Catechism was seen not only for the instruction of the youth, but for the instruction of all, and so also for the preaching. And therefore, in 1586, only 23 years after the Catechism was written, it was decided by the Reformed churches that from then on, they would also preach from the Catechism. And so we have been doing that now for more than 400 years. The Heidelberg Catechism has been translated into many languages and is one of the best-known catechisms coming out of the Reformation. But there are always, there are always those who wonder whether or not it is time that we do away with that custom. They wonder why it is that we have to preach from a human document. Why not just stick to the Bible? After all, we are more knowledgeable now than the church just after the Reformation. They had just come out of the Roman Catholic Church and were in need of some basic instruction. Do we still need that? The answer is, yes, we do. For in the first place, strictly speaking, we are not dealing with a human document here. For what are the authors of this catechism trying to do? 
did they want to come with some of their own wisdom, teachings based on tradition? No, they did not. The whole idea of the Reformation was to go back to the Bible, to the Scriptures. The leaders of the Reformation no longer wanted to rely on decisions of past councils and sinners and former popes. They wanted the pure gospel of salvation as the Lord himself passed it down to his people. That was their only aim. And that is exactly what the Heidelberg Catechism reflects. For you will note that every question and answer of the Catechism is supported by Scripture text. With every sentence, the Catechism gives proof from the Word of God. That's also the case, as you will see with this Lord's Day. It is pure gospel. The composers of the Catechism, Casper, Livianus, and Zacharias, Ursinus, wanted nothing more than to state simply and systematically that which the scriptures, scriptures themselves stated. Only in that sense is it a human document. For indeed, the systematic arrangement and the choosing of the biblical material is the work of men. And so it is not a perfect document. At times, there can be some criticism about the possibility of being more or less being included. In spite of that, all the material found in the Catechism is biblical. And the whole gospel is given there in a nutshell. We should all be fully convinced of that. And that is why the Catechism is also suitable for preaching. And why also in this day and age it is still very timely to use the catechism. Not only for the instruction of the youth of the church, but also for the preaching as it is normally done every Sunday afternoon. Let's face it, preachers are infallible human beings. And they will have the tendency to stress one part of the doctrine of the scriptures above another. They have their own hobby horses and their preferences for certain texts. And now being forced to follow the outline of the catechism, you may be assured that no aspects of the doctrines of the Bible is ignored. For each and every one of us continues to need to be comforted by every doctrine of the Bible. Time and again we need to be confronted with the teachings of God's word. We are never too sophisticated for that. It is never so that we can now say, this is enough. By by now we know it all. For even if you do know it, you still need to be reminded. The housewife, the office worker, the student, the farmer, and also the most learned professor of theology need to hear the simple doctrines of the scriptures time and again. For we all have a basic need which only the scriptures can fulfill. And what is that need? Well, the need is to be comforted. To be comforted with the words that we belong. And that is also what I want to preach preach to you about this afternoon. I want to preach to you about the only comfort in life and in death. And then we will see three things. First of all, the primary importance of that comfort. Secondly, the basis of that comfort. 
and then finally the life in that comfort. So I will preach to you about the only comfort in life and in death. First of all, the primary importance of that comfort. As I said, we need to be reminded time and again about the doctrine of salvation. How come? Why, for example, do we have to go to church every Sunday? Why do we have to listen every Sunday to the preaching? I'm sure that your children will ask that question at times as well. Don't you, children? You sometimes ask, why do we go, have to go to church again? And perhaps you yourself may have wondered that as well. Not out loud, of course, but you may have questioned that in your heart. Well, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, that has to do with the nature of the covenant that God has made with man. God has chosen you as his child. God loves you. And he wants to speak to you. He wants to talk to you. He made a promise that he would be your God for your whole life into eternity. He told you many wonderful things. He told you and he keeps on wanting to tell you that he forgives you your sins. If you are sorry for your sins. And he wants to tell you that he does not hold your sins against you. That he will remove your guilt. He already said that at the time of your baptism. But the children, as children, we did not yet understand that. But now you do. Why then do we have to hear that over and over again? Well, a covenant is like a marriage. As a matter of fact, the marriage is fashioned after the covenant the Lord God made with his people. And it is not so that once you have made your marriage vows that once you have said your I do's and pledged your undying love to one another, that then you are finished with the matter for the rest of your life. A marriage will soon be in trouble if one way or the other, husband and wife, do not tell each other that they love each other. They may not always say it in those exact words, but they must show their undying love for one another time and again, day in, day out. Or else, as I said, such a marriage will not last. Such a marriage will soon be dead. A married people belong to one another, and through the bond that such continual communication of love, it creates that bond. And so it keeps them together. And that is the way it ought to be. And what God has joined together, let no man tear apart. And the same thing goes with our relationship, with regard to our relationship to the Lord our God. There needs to be constant communication between him and us. The only difference, and that of course is a big difference, God is a perfect covenant partner. And furthermore, he is not equal to us. And that is all the more comforting, for that means that he is the one who initiates the covenant with us. Our relationship with him does not depend on us in the first place. No, he is the one who makes us part of his covenant. He is the one who first comes to us. His love for us does not depend on anything from our side. 
We do not have to seek him out. No, he seeks us out. As Christ said in John 6 verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you know how he does that? Do you know how he draws you? He does that by powerfully influencing your mind, your will, your heart, and your entire personality. He continues to work in you in this way so that you will accept Christ through a living faith. The word to draw us is also used of a net with which the fish are drawn into a boat. We, of course, are not mindless fish. The Lord deals with us as responsible human beings. And therefore, we must also allow ourselves to be drawn by him. That means that we must not resist his work in us. And that means that we must not resist the preaching. We must learn to love him and to regard him as our covenant God. But ultimately, he is the one who draws us. And the comfort for us is that he does not easily let us go. He keeps on drawing us into his net. For he continually tells us that we are his covenant people. He continually tells you and me that he deeply cares for us and loves us. And then as part and parcel of his covenant love, he also comes with his covenant obligations. He tells us what our part is in the relationship that we have with him. So that in our lives we can also show that we belong to him. But his love is first shown in his covenant promises. That is what he starts with. And that's also what the catechism starts with. And it's a good thing, therefore, that the catechism also recognizes that. The catechism does not first come with covenant obligations. It doesn't begin by telling us what we owe God. For even though the catechism is divided into three parts, our sin and misery, our redemption, and our thankfulness, this first question and answer stand outside of that division. Have you ever thought about why that is? Have you ever wondered why the Heidelberg Heidelberg Catechism does not begin by telling us about God, who he is, and what he expects from us? Well, that is because we first have to know where we stand with God. We have to know that we belong, body and soul. As the passage in Romans says, nothing can separate us from his love. He is our great redeemer. It's also what he told his nation Israel. Before he gave them the law, he told them what his relationship is to them. He told them that he redeemed them, that he delivered them from the land of Egypt. That he loves them. And we have to be keenly aware of God's love as we make our way through the catechism. As we have to do as we make our way through life. We may never lose sight of God's love for his covenant people. And that is why throughout as we make our way through the catechism, you will continually be reminded 
of the words of this first Lord's Day. Now, there are those also in the Reformed world who will criticize us, stating that we come too easily with the comfort. They believe that we overdo it when it comes to the belonging part. We are making the people in the pew too comfortable. This, they say, makes us complacent. Instead, we should preach more about our responsibility. We should stress the second part of the covenant. The fact that we belong should be known as a certainty only once you feel God's presence in your hearts. We should experience something first before we can be sure of our salvation. What do you think of such criticism? Do we take it to heart? Yes, to a certain extent we do. For indeed, we can learn something from that criticism. We can learn that in our relationship with the Lord our God, we certainly should not be left out in the cold personally. Preaching should not be designed to talk everyone into heaven. For we may not forget our responsibility within the covenant. For there are those who take their salvation, their comfort for granted. They think that it is an automatic thing. They go to the Lord's Supper table without a thought as to their conduct. Without a thought as to the way that they sin against God every day. They do not struggle with their sins as they should. Believing that God has done everything for them anyway. And so if that is the case with you, if in that state of mind you are going to go to the Lord's Supper table in two weeks, then you will drink and eat judgment upon yourself. And so to those of you I say, repent. However, we may not go to the other extreme and think that we are not worthy when we daily fight against our sins, when we are truly sorry for our sins. The Lord's Supper is meant for our comfort, to remind us that we belong, in spite of our sins, body and soul to our Lord, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. If you, in spite of God's promises that He washes you in the blood of Christ, and through him makes you worthy partakers, still insist that you are not worthy, and then you cast doubt upon God's sure word. And then you concentrate on yourselves and on your work rather than on the work of God. And then you become man-centered. For what is the basis of our comfort? That brings us to a second point. The basis of our comfort is the blood of Christ, not our own subjective feelings. Our focus is on Christ and not ourselves. Our focus is on what he has done, not on us. And that is why in our preaching we also use the redemptive historical approach, which takes all of scripture into consideration. Redemptive historical preaching does not begin with the individual as such, but with God's mighty acts in history. Historic redemptive preaching shows how God brings about the redemption of his people. It takes into account the reality of the covenant 
namely that God comes first with the promise and then the demand. It deals with the fact that there is an antithesis between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and that that has implication for all of redemptive history. It does not engage in exemplaric preaching, wherein the various biblical figures are used mainly as an example for us to follow. That's Arminian. Such preaching tends to man-centeredness. For one thing we should never lose sight of is that God's work comes first. He is the one who chooses us. And in that way, by putting Christ first, can you also let your feelings play a role, but only then. And then such knowledge may even move you to tears. I do not see how that could not affect you in this way. And in this way, you can also feel the weight of your sins. The enormity of your sins ought also to make you sad. But that's not where you start. You do not start with your own feelings. You do not start with your own responsibilities either. But you begin where the catechism begins. We belong, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our comfort And that is our strength. The dictionary states that the word comfort means something to be strengthened by or to strengthen yourself with. The word fort is in it. It means strength. We receive that comfort, that strength to go on in life. If we are fully convinced that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, he began that work in us. And so what is the basis of that comfort? The basis of that comfort is the meritorious and vicarious work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are big words. Let me explain. Meritorious refers to the fact that God is the one who made it all possible. All what he did on earth, he did for us and in our place. He did it free of charge. That's great comfort. And that's the message we have to hear time and again. It is a comfort that the Old Testament believer could have already, for in the Old Testament is also spoken of comfort. And in the Old Testament, an interesting word is used. It uses a word for comfort which is related to breathing, to breath. If there is a breath in a person, then he is animated, he is alive. And so comfort has to do with life. With true life. Now we live after Pentecost. We live after the death of Christ and after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And do you know what the Holy Spirit is called? He is called the Comforter. In John 14, verse 16, the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. It would have been just as correct to speak here about Comforter instead of Counselor. For the Greek word embraces both ideas. As we saw this morning, the Holy Spirit comforts us in the only way that we can be comforted through the word of God. That's God's way of keeping the lines of communication open to us. It is through his word that we may know of faithfulness, of the fact that Christ has fully paid for my sins, of the fact that he has set us free from all the power of the devil, 
of the fact that not a hair can fall from our head without his knowledge. All those biblical doctrines will be further developed as we make our way through the catechism. How then do we live in that comfort in the meantime? And that's the third point. Well, the catechism asks the question, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? The question is not, how do I get this comfort, but how will I enjoy this comfort? The question is not how you become a Christian, but how you live out of the riches of your Christian comfort. It's not really, too, it's not really so hard to obtain possessions. We do it all the time. We go shopping all the time. We buy things. But it is hard to enjoy your possessions, isn't it? It is hard to enjoy what you already have. We all easily get used to the things we have acquired. To enjoy a treasure is an art. You have to learn how to do that. Knowledge is needed. You have to learn to enjoy what you already have. It's much easier to think about the things you don't have. We do that all the time. I don't have the same health as somebody else or the same looks, or the same house, or the same bank account. It's those things that you think about. That seems to come naturally to us. However, it is a lot harder to enjoy the things that you have already been given. And to remind yourself of the riches and of the possessions that you already have. You have to learn to explore and meditate on your present riches. If you don't, you will not have comfort. And that's also true with regard to our spiritual riches. Think about what you have been given. In spite of your own sin and the sins of others, you are rich. Think about those riches. And do what Paul did while he was languishing in prison without any possessions and even with friends who betrayed him. In the midst of his miserable circumstances, he said in Philippians 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul knew how rich he was. In spite of everything. And so he lived a life of joy. Even in the midst of misery. And so if you wish to live and die in the joy of discomfort. Then you have to be knowledgeable. You have to be knowledgeable about sin. And about salvation. And about service. You cannot enjoy God's comfort. If you are not thoroughly familiar with these things. When you are knowledgeable about your own sins, then you're also a humble person who does not point fingers all the time at somebody else. But then you learn to point the finger at yourself first. And if you are knowledgeable about your salvation, then you realize how wonderfully you have been blessed through the precious gift of salvation through no merit of your own. 
Now you realize that you cannot add to your own salvation. And if you're knowledgeable about your gratitude, then you do your utmost to keep all of God's laws, and then you do your utmost to be in continual communication with God through prayer. How do you gain such knowledge? You gain such knowledge only through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. The Holy Spirit teaches you about your misery, your deliverance, and your gratitude. And not one of those elements must be missing. You have to know all three of these thoroughly. If people have a superficial faith, they also have a superficial knowledge about their sin. And then they also have a superficial knowledge about their salvation and a superficial knowledge about their gratitude. And anyone who is growing in his or her faith is growing in the knowledge of guilt and of grace and of gratitude. And when you have a deep faith, then you have a comprehensive knowledge of sin. And you have a warm knowledge of your Savior and a profound sense of gratitude. That's the kind of knowledge we want. And so we continue to allow ourselves to be taught by God's word and as they are summarized in our confessions. Amen.